Well, good morning. I love that last song we sang. I think it goes well with this series, that chorus, hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. Just talking about Christ, our living hope, what he's done for us. And as we talk about this series, these seven churches in Revelation, I think some of them got that, who their living hope was, Christ, what he had done for them. And some of them, as we've looked at, didn't really get that, and they had some problems they had to deal with. Uh, But before we jump into our next one this morning, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for bringing us here this morning. Lord, uh, just as we begin to open your word and look at what you have for us, just let these be your words and not mine. And Lord, just help our hearts to be open and ready to hear from you in your name. Amen. Well, if you don't know me, I'm Jason. Um, I'm the youth pastor here. Pastor Harold's on vacation. He'll be back soon. Um, But as we jump into this next one, our sixth church, if I say the word Rocky or cheesesteak, what city do you think of? Philadelphia. Okay, good. We're on the same page here. So my dad is a huge Rocky fan, the movies. So we went to Philadelphia when we were kids for vacation, and top of his list was seeing this. Some of you, that means absolutely nothing. If you've seen the movies, though, that's where Rocky runs up the stairs and stands at the top. So this is looking up it from the bottom. Um, Our next picture shows looking down. Yeah, that's looking down there. And so for my dad, we had to go there and get a picture at the top of it. And here is that picture of us. Now, the Wells family are, this this is for the younger ones here for a minute, our fit check is drippy, right? Okay, we had fire outfits there. You can tell by that. We are just peak style there. But we went to Philly, had to see this. My dad's like, let's get a picture. So my mom hands her camera to a guy at the very bottom while we walked up the stairs. None of us knew this. And we get up there and dad's like, where's your camera for the picture? She's like, oh, that guy way down there has it. And my dad goes, good, he's going to walk away with it before we can get down there too. Thankfully, he was honest. He took this nice picture for us and, and we got the camera back, thankfully, But today, we're not talking about Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. We're talking about Philadelphia in Asia Minor. And this church, it's located about 30 miles uh, southeast of Sardis. You see it right there. Um, uh, King Attalus II of Pergamum, he founded this city. It was nicknamed the City of Brotherly Love because he had a very fond affection for his brother. Um, And again, this city, like many of the other ones, it's very important on the trade route, right in the middle of a major trade route. Um, This city, though, was on the smaller side than many of the other ones, but it faced similar problems of the other ones. They had the trade guilds there, persecution, false teaching, so not all that different. But what was different was how the church responded and how faithful they were to the Lord. So let's jump in here today. We're going to look at verse 7 first. And to begin, we're going to see what we learn about the author, who is Jesus. So look at uh, Revelation 3, verse 7. The Bible says, And to the angel, or the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So here is the author of the letter, Jesus. We know he's the author uh, of these letters. He's the one saying it. The apostle John is penning them and sending them out to the churches. And so here, the first aspect we learn about Jesus uh, is that he is holy. So holiness means Christ shares that holy, sinless, uh, pure nature of his father. 
that he's pure, separate from sin. We're seeing uh, John here parallel and show that Jesus has some of the same attributes of God the Father, because Jesus is God as well. Uh, John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, so John's paralleling that here by showing they have the same attributes. We also see Jesus as true. That can refer to one who speaks truth, one who is um, authentic or genuine as well. It's another attribute of the Trinity. God cannot lie. So John is giving us a mini crash course in uh, like apologetics, defending your faith, theology, kind of teaching us about the attributes of God here. And then he gets into this next point about the key of David. And this is really important to learn this about Jesus because this helps us understand several of the verses later. But this indicates the governmental authority of the line of David. That's back in Israel, the line of David were the kings. And in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied of a coming child that would rule from the line of David. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, uh, and in, in verse 7, he says, And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This is showing Christ had the power to judge and was going to have the governmental authority one day in his coming kingdom that we see at the end of Revelation. Earlier on in the book, in Revelation 1.18, we see Christ as having the power over death and hell, the keys to that. Here we see Christ having the keys to salvation and to life. You see, the Jewish people in the synagogue here, we're going to see more about this in a moment, but they would have believed that they had the keys to life. They knew everything there was about having, having life, and Jesus is showing them, no, 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 life is through me. We see him as one that opens and closes this door. He has the power over the door, and, and, and we'll talk about this a little more as we get into the church, but we see Christ is actively opening and closing the door. He's confronting these men to let them know, these people to let them know that salvation is only through him, and only God can open and close the door and people need to respond while that door is open. In the beginning of verse 8, Jesus says, I know your deeds. And we haven't read the verse yet, but we'll see it in just a moment. But he said that in previous weeks. Remember, he said that to Ephesus. He knew their deeds. He knew their works. He knew what they were doing. He knew the motivation behind them. In this word here, uh, in the, the perfect tense, his knowledge of this church's past works, of the people in Philadelphia's past works, it results in the commendations and the exhortations or the praise that's about to come. Uh, we rem remind ourselves by that that Christ is omniscient. He knows everything. So if he knows everything, the application for us is he knows our works and our motivation behind what we do as well. So here in this church, we see a little bit more about Jesus. Through every one of these churches, we learn about our Savior, and we see how he described himself to the church. Now let's see what's going on in the church. Look at verse 8. Uh, the Bible says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now here I want you to know this church was one of the good ones. We haven't seen a lot of good ones in Revelation, right? This is one of only two out of seven. And so in their performance review, Jesus didn't have anything negative or corrective to say to this church. Now that doesn't mean they were a perfect church, 
Okay, they still had flaws, they had problems, they had uh, sinful people, just like all the other churches do, just like our church does. No one was perfect, but what they were, the idea is that they were faithful and faith-filled. So not that the church and the church members were perfect, but that they were a faithful church with faithful church members living life the way they were supposed to. And so as we evaluate ourselves today, as we evaluate our own church, as we look at our life, what we need to do is look at the good things this church was doing and say, are those faithful things present in my life? Are those faith, is that faithfulness present in my life? Because Christ knew their deeds like he knows our deeds, and he knows if we're faithful or not like they were as well. So Christ says, I know your deeds. He then says, I've set before you an open door. We see a door having been opened, and this door uh, opened there by Christ. And there's a few meanings of it here. Uh, Perhaps the best two are, uh, first off, that the door talks about being uh, the door to the Messianic kingdom. Uh, One author says this, it speaks of a sure entrance into the Messianic kingdom promised to this church as a reward for their faithfulness. No one, not even the synagogue of Satan, we'll see that in a minute, can shut them out. Jewish opponents would seek to deny Gentiles, such as Christians in this city, entrance to the Messianic kingdom. Remember, the Jews didn't want the Gentiles to go into the kingdom. They didn't want, to be, want them to be saved. They didn't want them to have a relationship with God. They, they believed that only the Jewish people could have that, and they were not correct. So one is the entrance to the Messianic kingdom. The other is a door open for them to have opportunities to share the gospel and to be able to reach others around them. Acts 14, 27, we see this as well. The Bible says, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They're the early church. They're talking about the doors that were open to share the gospel and to do good around them so that others could see Jesus' love. So, you know, often God opens doors for us as well. For salvation, he opens that door and makes it possible for us to be saved by sending his son Jesus on the earth. It's, we have to accept it. That's what it is. He also opens doors for us to share the gospel and represent Christ well. He did that for this church. In this church, uh, they were faithful. They'd accepted Christ. They'd already handled that. And now he's opening doors of opportunities for them to be witnesses and share the gospel in their city around them. And because they were faithful, they kept getting more and more opportunities to do that. What are you doing with the opportunities, the doors that God opens in your life to share the gospel, to represent Christ well? We also see this next phrase here, and it says they, they have a little power. And some of us might think that's an indictment or a negative thing, but, but it's not. It says they have, a, they have a little power or a little strength, and most likely— small small city, small church. They weren't this massive church, but it also gives the idea that both they were a smaller church, so they didn't have power in numbers, but they weren't, as we would like to think, perfect Christians, rock stars, these people we put up on a pedestal because they know everything about the Bible and theology, and they're crushing it. No, 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 no. The idea is that Christ was holding the door open to them because of their faith, not because of their power or their ability. You see, they're going to be able to, to share the gospel, to do what they're able to do because of Christ's strength and not their own. Think about what Philippians 4.13 tells us. It says, I can do all things through 
him who strengthens me. Not through ourselves and through our own strength, but through Christ's strength. He opens the doors and then gives them the ability and the strength to do what they need to do, to live life the way they need to live. It wasn't about them doing it and them crushing it, but it was about what Christ was doing in them because of their faithfulness. The next one, and the reason they were really able to be faithful, and if you get nothing else from what they do, focus in on this one. They kept God's word. You see, the church at Philly had faithfully kept the word of God. They had preserved its meaning. They applied it to their lives. They studied it. And in keeping God's word and God's commandments, they really showed and demonstrated the depth of their love to God. Jesus says this in John 14, 21 through 24. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, that's us, we have his commandments in the Bible, is one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You know, in our, in our own day and age, there's many, many attacks uh, that try to keep, many things that try to keep believers from keeping God's word. Uh, it was said this way by one, we are asked by some to abandon Genesis to science, salvation by redemption to anthropology, the life of the spirit to psychology, the very word itself to higher criticism. But Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you hear what's in God's word and you'll do that. If you don't love me, you don't do that. I would hope most of us in here would say, yeah, I love God. I, I want to do that. I love him. So we should keep his commandments. And listen, all over today, uh, we have attacks on the authority of God's word, uh, the authority of the Bible. I read an article this week from churchleaders.com, and they were making the statement that one reason it's harder to be a pastor today than in years past is because people don't believe in the authority of God's word anymore. What do I mean by that? Well, they hear what God's word says. Uh, somebody, a pastor, stands up and says, God says to do this in his word. And as people today tend to go, eh, I don't really want to. I don't want to listen to that. Or more importantly, I, I don't really like that. Another instance of that is, you know, Dave Ramsey, the financial guy. If you listen to him uh, ever on his radio show or talk or anything, whenever he takes a phone call, he's, people say, how are you? He says, better than I deserve. Why does he say that? Well, because of what the Bible says about us. It says, before we were saved, we were enemies of God. We were separated from God, right? We, we deserved that because of our sin. But because of Jesus' gift, because of salvation, we have a restored relationship with God and all these blessings God brings in that. We are better than we deserved because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. So he has this viewpoint of saying, well, because I'm blessed by God. I'm better than what I deserve on my own. And, and today, there's a big push against that. People calling that out and saying that's bad because that hurts our self-esteem, our own self-esteem and how we feel about ourselves. That hurts uh, how happy we are because happiness is the goal. One apologist, Frank Turek, says it this way. He says, people aren't on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. 
You know, the Bible would say we need to seek out truth and follow God's word and follow what God has to say about our lives. But most people go, mm, I'm going to go for what makes me happy. I want to choose what makes me happy. God doesn't say happiness is our top priority as Christians. Not that we should always be sad and upset and, and terrible. That's not what he's saying. But happiness, our own personal happiness, isn't the main goal of the Bible. Rather, uh, or as Christians, but unfortunately for many of us, it tends to be that. You see, God says we should have a relationship with Christ and a strong relationship with him rather than focusing on our own individual happiness or what we want. And you see, we're weak six out of seven in this series, and we've heard a lot of challenges like that about God's word being important. And we've seen this church that's crushing it, because they're staying faithful to God's word, and we've seen other churches who were not because they weren't, and we look at that and we say, okay, well, well, what's personally changing in our lives because of that? Because maybe for many of us, we're hearing, hey, we need to have a relationship with Christ. We need to, we need to read God's word. We need to share the gospel. We need to be faithful to God, and we look at it and go, eh, I don't want to, though. Or maybe we say, I don't know how. Well, good news for you, we have tons of ways to help you with that here. Number one is here. Y'all are here doing it this morning, right? We're hearing God's word. Uh, we're hearing it preached. We're in church. We're worshiping him. Another one is Thursday night Bible studies. We've got great teachers who teach a men and women's Bible study, and we go through God's word, and we study it in depth. We've got Fuse for students, Grace Kids for kids. Uh, we've got the Grow class coming up that Pastor Harold literally teaches how to study God's word. We've got micro groups where we pair you with another believer and have them help walk with you through life and do that. We've got plenty of ways to help you if you want the help, because the importance for us is we need to grow in our knowledge and our understanding and our application and obedience to God's word. You see, this church made an effort to follow God's word, to keep it, and then to not deny Christ's name. They didn't deny him by their words or actions. Rather, they kept him by keeping his actions and obeying what his word says. You see, this church was faithful to God. My question for you is, are you faithful to God? Are we as a church faithful to what God wants us to do? Christ then had some comforting promises for this church. And I think this is really, really cool here and really, really interesting because the good news of these promises is most of these weren't just given to this church in Philadelphia, but rather to the church as a whole, to us, to the other churches. But you see, with the other churches, Christ had to spend so much time correcting problems going on that he didn't get to get to all the promises with them and share it with them. So what are some of the promises, these comforting promises to the church that Jesus gives them? We'll look at verses 9 through 13. The Bible says, verse 9, here we go. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown." 
He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus first promises. He's talking about, and we mentioned it earlier, the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews. And we saw them in Smyrna as well in Revelation 2.9. These are Jewish people by birth, but pagan by action, by religion. They don't accept Christ as the Messiah. They don't accept Christ as their Savior. So what we see happening here is Judaism becomes as much of a false teaching as the emperor worship going on in Rome, as the other false teachings we've seen go on in all the other cities, Judaism becoming just as much of a false teaching because they don't teach Jesus as their savior. They would, they would, again, likely be in the local synagogues, going against the church, opposing them, trying to cause problems because they didn't want the church uh, to, to continue on. They didn't believe that they believed, the Jewish people believed they were right and not these Gentiles in the church believing about Jesus. They claimed to be Jewish, but they were not. They were lying. They were being hostile toward believers. So what's Christ's promise about these people being hostile towards the church? He said, they will worship before your feet and know that I love you. So this sounds like, like, like Christ is going to humble them and bring them in, right? But really, it's a good thing. Listen to what it is. Christ was going to give converts from this synagogue of Satan, these Jewish people, and let them uh, come to a belief in Christ and a relationship with him so that they would come and worship with the church and be a part of the church. Think about this for a minute. These are people that are hostile to the church. They don't, they don't like the church. They believe differently. But God, because he loves everybody, he allows them to place their faith and trust in him, just like he allowed us to do that, to have their relationship restored with him. And now these people that were being hostile towards the church and causing problems are going to church with the people they hated just moments ago, and they're worshiping with them, and they're realizing the same love that those people that have already been in the church realize from God. Think about how cool that is. Think about how awesome that is. These people were hating the church, and now they're a part of it. It'd be the same for us if, if you have somebody who's out opposing the church, hating on it, all that, and, and they get saved and come join us. It's not a, a negative thing. It's an awesome thing. It's God being at work because of this church's faithfulness. You see, the Jewish people understood this too. In Zechariah 8, 20 through 23, Zechariah describes a time when, when Gentiles would honor faithful Jews in the Old Testament. They'd say, hey, we see your God working. We know what's going on here. We want to be blessed like you are. But now in the church age that the church is going on, it's, it's the opposite is true. God elevates both believing Gentile and believing Jew over the national-born Jew who doesn't respect Jesus as the Messiah. You see, this, this, this was awesome because Jesus wasn't now looking at, at these national-born Jews, but he was looking for faithful over faithless. It wasn't about race or who was born where. It was about who accepted Christ as their Savior and who didn't. And you see, formerly non-believing Jews from the synagogue of Satan now had a chance to worship in the midst of the church here. And that's awesome. You see, because they got to see the love that God had 
for the Christians there. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the, the salvation for our sins. Not that, that the world knows that we chose God because we're great. Not that, not that the city there, the Jewish people in the synagogue got to go, oh, the church there, they are just spiritual giants. They are amazing Christians. They're crushing it. We want to be a part of it. No, no, no. They got to see God's love for the church and see God loved them first, just like God loves us. The question for us is, though, as we see that, is, is our church doing that as well? Are we, are we being faithful to God so that people aren't thinking we think we're better than them, but we're sharing the love that God has shared with us? Jesus also mentions a promise of perseverance. Perseverance is needed in the midst of adversity, uh, more than likely. Um, there would be trying times and persecution going on as well, so there would need to be some perseverance, and that perseverance was persevering until our salvation is complete and our glorification in heaven. We're in heaven with God, uh, uh, and we have our glorified bodies, and there's some patience that needs to happen with that, right? Because none of us are in heaven right now, right? We're all still on earth. Just checking, everyone alive in here? Okay, I think so. So there's some, some perseverance, some patience we got to have before we all get to heaven, because none of us are there yet. But there's a patient expectation. That is that Christ is going to return and bring us with him to heaven one day. And so Christ's next promise for them is, I'm going to keep you from the hour. We say, okay, well, what, what is this hour? He's referring to an event in the future that is for a short time, it severely tests the whole world. He's referring to what we call the tribulation, that seven-year period um, of before Christ's early kingdom that features divine wrath and judgment poured out on the unbelieving world. Um, we see it expressed as seals and trumpets and bowls, and you can read more about it in Revelation 6 through 19. But here, Jesus mentions this time coming up, but he mentions to the church the verb keep. And it's followed by a preposition whose normal meaning is from or out of. Remember, grammar's important. I didn't think so in high school at the time, but it's really important. You get a grammar lesson again today. Jesus says, I'm going to keep you out of, keep you from. And it supports what we call a, a pre-tribulation rapture theology. Those are big words to simply mean that not just is, Jesus isn't just going to keep the church safe during that tribulation that's going on, but Jesus is going to keep them from it. Jesus is going to return and meet them in the air, and he's going to take the church with him to heaven before this event begins. And he was promising the church in Philly that if you truly believe him, if you've accepted him as your savior, that before that event happens, I'm going to take you to heaven with me and take you away from that. Because there'll be some that get saved during that time period, and they'll face persecution and trials from the Antichrist, and it's, it's going to be a rough time. But God was saying this time, just like the context of the book of Revelation, is him pouring out his wrath on the unbelieving world. And remember, the other context of this book, the idea of the book of Revelation, is not that we know about all these events and every detail of it, but that we learn more about God. That's why every one of these churches and the letters to them, we've learned about Jesus. We've seen more about him. We're seeing about how he's going to take care of his church before this happens. We're seeing what he's going to do, and eventually justice and judgment will be brought against sin. 
And so we're learning about who God is. And this judgment is for those who dwell on the earth at the time who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And like believers in Philly, those who have trusted Christ prior to that happening now, because the rapture hasn't happened yet, will be kept away from this time. So Jesus says, I'm going to protect you from this hour, and this promise goes out to the church as well. But he also says, I'm coming quickly. And so sometimes that word can be used a little bit differently, right? We can say uh, quickly, and it means a lot of different things. So Jesus isn't threatening incoming judgment like we see earlier in the chapter with other churches, but rather a hopeful event. He's saying, all right, he's going to return and take his church out of the hour of trial. And this word, I want you to think of the word imminence here. Not that it means quickly as in it's going to happen in the next 10 seconds, but imminently, meaning the quality or condition of being about to occur. It means that Christ can come back at any moment. There's nothing that has to transpire or take place before he comes back. The disciples thought that would be in their lifetime. The church at Philly thought their lifetime. Many of us might think our lifetime. We don't know when it'll be, but we know there's nothing holding him back. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready for it? Christ says, I'm coming back imminently. So then he tells them how they need to live in in light of that, because that should motivate us to live a certain way, right? Knowing that Christ could return at any moment should motivate us. So Jesus tells this church, hold fast so that no one can take your crown. That means, hang on, keep doing what you're doing. He's using a, a, a present tense imperative saying, do this, keep doing what you're doing. Keep staying faithful. You know, again, we're at week six out of seven into this series, and, and, and we ask ourselves, okay, well, what, what is that? What are we applying about what we're hearing? Look at what Revelation 1-3 says. Blessed is he who reads and, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. You know, this is the only biblical book with this promise of of being blessed for listening to it, hearing it, and not just listening to it and hearing it, but applying it to our lives. Jesus says, what are you doing with what you've done? What changes have you made to your life since this series has started? How have you obeyed God? Have you done a performance review? How have you applied what we're hearing to your life? Or are we hearing it and still choosing to live contrary to it? Week after week, many of us get up here and say, God wants us to live life this specific way. God wants us to be faithful. He wants us to read his word. He wants us to to be like this church. And many of us say, that's cool, but I'm going to do it my way. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The, The thought of Jesus coming back imminently at any time should motivate us as Christians and as a church. Hebrews 10.25 tells us it should motivate us to be together more, to be encouraging one another more, to be sharing the gospel more, because that's what this church did. This church believed Christ could come back at any moment, so they wanted to make sure their friends, their family, their co-workers, everyone knew about Jesus. You see, our goal here on earth is supposed to be about heavenly things. Think about Matthew 6, 19 through 21. The Bible tells us to store up treasures in heaven, 
not on earth, because on earth they're corruptible, they fade away, they get destroyed, right? You can have the nicest things on earth, nicest, as much money, it goes away, possessions go away, cars and boats break down, clothes fade away, but those treasures we store up in heaven last forever. Our focus should be on what lasts eternally, not what doesn't. We obviously need money here. God doesn't want us to not enjoy things. We should enjoy what we have, but our focus should be on what lasts forever and eternity. Well, what lasts in eternity? Well, how about sharing the gospel with a friend or a family member, and they get saved, and you get to see them forever in eternity? That lasts forever. How about how faithfully we serve God here, and he rewards us in heaven? That lasts forever. Unfortunately, your boat can't go with you to heaven. Your money can't go with you. It all stays here, and it goes to your kids or the government. But what you serve God for lasts for eternity. You see, Jesus said this church was going to be these ones that overcame, that is, that is, those who trusted Christ in their Savior. They would enjoy an unshakable, eternal, secure place in the presence of God. It gives the idea of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. He'll never leave you. He also said they will not go out. And this phrase relates to fellowship with God. It's talking about restoring their fellowship with God one day. They're not going to go out from their fellowship with God. You see, that's the way God intended it. In Genesis 1, that's how God intended there to be relationship between God and man. They're to be able to walk with each other and see each other and talk face to face. But because of our sin, that can't happen. So then we see the redemption story start to take place throughout the whole Bible. It's the story of the, the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation. Because God intended to have a relationship with us but we messed it up. And so God's promising to the overcomer, the, the one who's placed their faith in him, the true believer in Philly, the promise of fulfillment of that first love that was so lacking in Ephesus, he says, I'm going to fulfill it here one day. One day it's going to be fulfilled. He's just promising this church that that fellowship is going to be restored one day when we're in heaven. It's almost like God with this church is just spending time telling them all these awesome promises because they were being faithful. Because he didn't have to spend time saying, hey, you're doing all these things that aren't right. He said, hey, you guys were being faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. So let's just talk about all the good things that are to come. And it was awesome to hear it. So here's the, the question for us. How's our relationship with God? You see, the last promise he gave to them was that the name of God was written on them. And in biblical times, one's name spoke of his character. Writing his name on us speaks of imprinting on us. It speaks of, of uh, his character and identifying us as his. You see, God says, those that have placed their faith and trust in me, those that are true believers, they're mine. I'm identifying them as mine. I'm identifying this church as mine. I have a shirt that says, I belong to Jesus, and, and it's supposed to be a baptism shirt, but when it gets uh, wet, it says, Jesus belongs to me. Jesus is identifying that, hey, these people belong to me. As the band comes up, we'll, we'll close out with a song this morning, but when you read verse 13, it's, it's pretty similar with all the churches. Uh, the Bible says um, right at the end, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The, the idea is each letter has a benefit to all seven churches, and to us today as well. 
all the other churches reading these letters could say, okay, all right, these apply to us. What was told to Sardis applies to Ephesus and vice versa. So here, what the Holy Spirit is speaking applies to our church as well. All of us, if we're a true believer, has the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and he's teaching us, correcting us, convicting us of sin. The question is, is there an area of our life where he's telling us to live differently? As we've looked at these churches, is there an area where Christ is saying, you need to do this? You need to obey in this area? Are we listening to him? Our takeaways for the week are this. They're, they're rather simple, and they come down to what is faithfulness to God? You see, this church wasn't perfect. This church wasn't amazing, great Christians, but they were faithful. What were they faithful in? What does their faithfulness look like? It looks like this. If we're going to be faithful, we have to make God's word and prayer an important, integral part of our life. God's word was so important to them. If he said it, they were trying their best to obey it. We got to make our church family an important part of our life, being together with each other in fellowship. He also says that they needed to make serving their church an important part of life. Serving church. Why? Because the world got to see them serving each other and loving each other, and it was a way to represent Christ to the world. We also see them make sharing the gospel an integral part of their life. If we're going to be a faithful church, those four aspects have to be in each and every one of our lives. The question is, will we hear, read, and obey? At this time, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll close out in a song with the band.